This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987. Institute for Christian Economics. Tyler, Texas. Appendix. Warfield's Vision of Victory, Lost and Found. Quote, Dr. Warfield's funeral took place yesterday afternoon at the First Church of Princeton. It seemed to me that the old Princeton, a great institution it was, died when Dr. Warfield was carried out. I am thankful for one last conversation I had with Dr. Warfield some weeks ago. He was quite himself that afternoon, and somehow I cannot believe that the faith which he represented will ever really die. In the course of the conversation, I expressed my hope that to end the present intolerable condition, there might be a great split in the church in order to separate the Christians from the anti-Christian propagandists. No, he said, you can't, you can't split rotten wood. His expectation seemed to be that the organized church, dominated by naturalism, would become so cold and dead that people would come to see that spiritual life could be found only outside of it, and that thus there might be a new beginning. Nearly everything that I have done, I have done with the inspiring hope that Dr. Warfield would think well of it. End quote. J. Gresham Machen. Letter to his mother. February 19, 1921. No man can excel at everything in life. Benjamin B. Warfield had his limitations. He understood them and lived in terms of them. He was not a famous preacher, nor was he a skilled bureaucrat inside the theologically declining Northern Presbyterian Church. Unlike Machen, a bachelor, Warfield was not a popular instructor who mixed readily with the students. In later years, he had the heavy burden of caring for his invalid wife and had little time for church politics and social activities. His contribution to God's church was limited and highly focused, he wrote. He wrote volumes, scholarly books and reviews, as well as easily read essays. He was dedicated to the idea that scholarship is basic to the establishment of God's kingdom in time and on earth, and he was determined to do his part to bring in that kingdom through self-disciplined, dedicated scholarship. He sat in his study, decade after decade, and left a unique, almost unparalleled legacy of theo theological scholarship. It is clear from Machen's letter to his mother that Warfield's influence was very great on the young scholar. If any reformed theologian of the 1920s and 1930s deserves to be recognized as Warfield's spiritual intellectual heir, it is J. Gresham Machen. Machen's Battle Machen went beyond Warfield in many ways. He was independently wealthy, so he did not have to worry about where his next meal was coming from, even if he was fired from or resigned from his teaching position at Princeton Theological Seminary. His relationships with his students substituted for the wife and children he never had. His students responded with both affection and dedication, and this was to enable Machen to lead an institutional challenge in the Presbyterian Church, USA. Machen was a scrapper, perhaps not by temperament, but by timing, choice, and abilities. In this sense, he was not an heir of Warfield's personality, but he was an heir to Warfield's theological vision. 
he applied Warfield's theology to historical circumstances. Warfield had not been the man to launch a defensive battle against all of modernism, or even modernism within the Presbyterian Church. The timing was wrong. The conservative members of the church in Warfield's era had virtually no awareness concerning the impending theological crisis. After the famous and successful Briggs heresy trial in 1893, the Presbyterian Church did not again attempt to remove a major theological leader for reasons of heresy. The liberals understood this weakness on the part of the conservatives, an unwillingness continually to, quote, cleanse the temple, end quote, theologically. By the end of his long career in 1920, Warfield knew how such a defensive fight might, would turn out. Machen's challenge to the modernists was front-page news in the New York Times from 1923 until he and his faithful little band of 34 mostly younger pastors, what the church calls teaching elders, 17 ruling elders, and 79 laymen left the church in June of 1936. Today, we find it difficult to believe that theology was a major issue in the secular press, but it was. Insofar as theological issues determined who would control the funds, boards, and influence of the denominations in the interwar decades. Warfield's name had not been featured in the newspaper, newspapers of his day, for he was content to remain at his calling. He rallied no troops, issued no manifestos, and appealed no judicial decisions through the Presbyterian court system. What he did was to lay down an intellectual and theological foundation that might be used in the future. He believed to reconstruct the entire ecclesiastical order, and after that, the world. Old Princeton It is generally acknowledged that Princeton Theological Seminary was, from its founding in the early 19th century until Machen's departure in 1929, the world's leading academic institution of conservative Protestant scholarship. It was almost a family enterprise. So dominant were the names of Hodge and Alexander in the 19th century. Benjamin B. Warfield was the last of these giants, whose name is exclusively associated with Princeton. The Princeton theological tradition had been stu studied by several scholars. It was noted for its strict adherence to the inerrancy of Scripture and its proclamation of Calvinist theology. It was dedicated creedal institution. Its adherence to the Westminster Confession of Faith placed it at the forefront of Reformed Presbyterianism throughout the 19th century. It maintained high standards of scholarship, while Princeton University in the late 19th century began to drift theologically under the rule of President Mikosh, who adopted certain principles of evolutionism in an attempt to fuse Christianity and modern thought. Princeton Seminary under the Hodges did not waver. Charles Hodge recognized the enormous threat to orthodoxy which Darwinism posed, and he rejected it vigorously. Darwinism's Threat By the turn of the century, however, the inroads of Darwinism in conservative Christian intellectual circles had begun to take its toll. The seminary's faculty members were not willing to go into print with anti-evolutionary articles, let alone whole books. As American seminary education became ever more narrow, confined to biblical languages, which the colleges no longer taught extensively, preaching and theology proper, concern over the confrontation between science and scripture, fell into the background. Christian scholars of that era had no body of scientific creationist scholarship to rely upon as a first-line defense against Darwinism. There were numerous conflicting varieties of Darwinism, it should be understood. The modern Darwinian synthesis 
which has begun to disintegrate since the early 1970s, had not yet gained universal acceptance. The confrontation between Christianity and Darwinism was not yet visibly total, as it became after World War I. Christians did not yet understand just how all-encompassing Darwinism is as a philosophy. They did not fully recognize how the tenets of evolution create a rival worldview in every academic discipline and in every area of life, not just in biology and historical geology, but in politics, economics, law, psychology, and philosophy. Warfield did not insist on a six-day creation. Indeed, he announced in a Princeton Theological Review essay, 1911, that, quote, the question of the antiquity of man has itself no theological significance. It is to theology, as such, a matter of indifference how long man has existed on earth. The Bible does not assign a brief span to human history. This is done only by a particular mode of interpreting the biblical data, which is found on examination to rest on no solid basis. End quote. Warfield, in one brief essay, gave away the case for biblical creationism and thereby undercut the Christian's defense of that most fundamental of doctrines, according to Van Til, the creator-creature distinction. The blurring and outright denial of this distinction is the essence of all pagan religions, and especially of Darwinism, the religion of modern man. Warfield, heavily influenced by the humanism he sought to refute, reflected the softening of the old princeton. Seminary Education the soft underbelly. Because of the high emphasis Presbyterians have always put on a highly educated priesthood, to the point of distinguishing, quote, teaching elders, end quote, seminary graduates from, quote, ruling elders, end quote, laymen elected to office, the church was innately vulnerable to long-term infiltration. The, quote, ruling elders, laymen, were generally more interested in peace, evangelism, church growth, and therefore ecclesiastical unity. The, quote, teaching elders, who might have been expected to uphold Presbyterianism's rigorous doctrinal standards, were graduates of seminaries, and seminaries were innately compromised. They recognized higher academic degrees as the main criterion of permanent ecclesiastical positions. But the humanist world which granted such degrees was hostile to the Orthodox faith. Thus, the lure of Harvard, Princeton University, Yale, and the German theological cesspools was too great just as it had been too great for Christian colleges in our day. Simultaneously, the good old boy mentality of the teaching elders eroded the willingness of their fellow graduates to boot out heretics. Old friends from seminary, after all, had to be recognized as fellow runners of the academic gauntlet. Besides, their former professors had graduated them. This was not quite the same as having baptized their theological views, but over time, this is what graduation from seminary came to mean. The seminary degree was, after 1893, and probably from 1812 onward, very nearly a guarantee of eventual ecclesiastical licensure. Warfield recognized the threat, but he only discussed it publicly late in his career. He saw the seminary as a support institution, one with distinct limitations. Quote, it is not the function of the seminary to give young men their entire training for the ministry. That is the concern of the presbytery, and no other organization can supersede the presbytery in this business. The seminary is only an instrument which the presbytery uses in training young men for the ministry, an instrument, 
not the instrument. The presbytery uses other instruments also in this work, end quote. But no matter how hard he or other Calvinistic Presbyterians might proclaim the legitimate sovereignty of the Presbytery, their rationalism and their respect for the institutions of higher, humanist learning eventually undercut their warnings. The implicit rationalism of the old Presbyterianism led into the quicksand of certification. Once a man had earned his degree from an approved seminary, it became very difficult for laymen to challenge him when he sought ordination and the very fact that he had a degree made him very nearly an initiate in advance among the teaching elders who distinguished themselves institutionally and I would guess psychologically from ruling elders by their possession of an earned degree. Who then, within the conservative camp, was ready for a fight with degree-holding heretics within the camp? Hardly anyone after 1893. Old Princeton's Weakness Apologetics the liberals had a difficult time in their capture of the northern Presbyterians because of the rigorous orthodoxy of the Westminster Standards. It took them half a century. But Princeton and McCormick seminaries could not withstand indefinitely the pressure of humanist education. It was not merely a question of the lack of numbers of old-school advocates. It was a much deeper problem than church politics. Old-school Presbyterianism was itself rationalistic in its apologetic methodology its philosophical defense of the faith. Its apologetic method was based on the belief in the existence of shared first principles of logic between the saved and the lost. This was essentially a form of epistemological inclusivism. Warfield wrote, quote, All minds are of the same essential structure, end quote. Because they have the same mental structure, unbelievers are subject to arguments for Christianity that appeal to a common human reason. It was this aspect of the apologetics of Princeton Seminary that Westminster Seminary philosopher-theologian Cornelius Van Til criticized for half a century as Princeton's weak link theologically. Warfield was a post-millennialist. He believed that the gospel of Christ will triumph on earth before Christ returns again in judgment. But what undermined Warfield's eschatology was his reliance on human reason. The old Princeton rationalist apologetic method as an important basis of this great revival. It is difficult for us to believe that anyone in the post-Darwin or even post-Kant world could have believed in reason as the means of evangelism, but Warfield did. No more vigorous defense of, quote, the primacy of the intellect, end quote, as the Christian's tool of dominion can be found in Christian literature. The part that apologetics has to play in the Christianizing of the world is rather a primary part, and it is a conquering part. It is the distinction of Christianity that it has come into the world clothed with the mission to reason its way to its dominion. Other religions may appeal to the sword or seek some other way to propagate themselves. Christianity makes its appeal to right reason and stands out among all religions, therefore, as distinctly the apologetic religion. It is solely by reasoning that it has come thus far on its way to its kingship, and it is solely by reasoning that it will put all its enemies under its feet. End quote. The credentials of Christianity, said Warfield, are its logic. Quote, it stands calmly over against the world with its credentials in its hands and fears no contentions of men. End quote. But these credentials were collapsing in Warfield's day and did collapse in Machen's day in the face of Darwinism. Post-Heisenberg science 
and the rise of secular humanism. Warfield believed in the triumph of Christianity through logic, but it was as a result of the continual intellectual defeats suffered by Christians who used the rationalism of Protestant scholasticism, which Warfield taught, that conservative churches went into a 50-year eclipse after 1925. The logic which Warfield proclaimed turned out to be a drawbridge by which humanists crossed Christianity's defensive moat and began to batter down its gates. Warfield's much-praised credentials turned out to be, first and foremost, humanism's credentials, both in principle, common ground logic, and institutionally, seminary and university degrees. This weakness of Princeton's apologetic methodology had been present from the very beginning. In an informative introduction to the writings of several of the great Princeton theologians, Mark Knoll offers a fine summary of the presuppositions, common ground reasoning, of what has come to be called the Scottish common-sense philosophy. It was this apologetic approach which Van Til, using a consistently presuppositionalist apologetics in the tradition of Dutchman Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink, challenged from the earliest stages of his career. Knoll writes, quote, this approach laid great stress on the common sense of humankind. It argued that normal people using responsibly the information provided by their senses actually grasped thereby the real world. Furthermore, an exercise of the moral sense, a faculty analogous in all important ways to physical senses, gave humans immediate knowledge about the nature of their own minds. And because all humans, humanity in common, were able to grasp the truth of the world in this way, in fact, could not live unless they took for granted that truth was available in this way. This common sense would provide the basis for a full-scale philosophy as well. The Scottish philosophers regarded truth as a static entity, open equally to all people wherever they lived, in the present or past. They placed a high premium on its scientific investigation. They were deeply committed to an empirical method that made much of gathering relevant facts into logical holes. They abhorred speculation, and metaphysics as unconscionable flights from the basic realities of the physical world and the human mind, and at least some of them assumed that this approach could be used to convince all rational souls of the truth of Christianity, the necessity of traditional social order, and the capacity of scientific methods to reveal whatever may be learned about the world." End quote. It should not be surprising to find that Machen, as the last of the old Princetonians, spoke of the need of defending a scientific theology. His debt to the old Princeton, including its experientialism, was very great. The humanists of the 20th century have successfully called in all such debts to 19th century rationalism. The debtors went epistemologically bankrupt. Van Til's approach takes the best of both Kuiper and Warfield. In contrast to Kuiper, Van Til argues that we can do more than preach to the natural, unregenerate man. We can show him, by the premises of his own philosophy, that he has no place to stand epistemologically. Van Til uses the transcendental proof of God, that without presupposing the God of the Bible, man can say nothing logical. In contrast to Warfield, Van Til argues that all unregenerate men use their anti-God presuppositions to come to the logical conclusion that the God of the Bible cannot possibly exist. Therefore, if we allow the natural man to use his logic in this way, if we allow him to assume that we all begin with the same presuppositions about reality 
as autonomous men, then we cannot deal with him effectively. We have violated the Bible's first principle, namely, that it is God who is sovereign, and therefore man has no autonomy. Warfield wanted to appeal to the common right reason of man in his defense of the faith. But as Van Til comments, quote, In apologetics, Warfield wanted to operate in neutral territory with the non-believer. He thought that this was the only way to show to the unbeliever that theism and Christianity are objectively true. He sought for an objectivity that bridged the gulf between Kuiper's natural and special principles. End quote. Then he makes himself clear. Quote, I have chosen the position of Abraham Kuyper. We must confront the natural man with the bankruptcy of his position. We do need to challenge him logically, but only by using God's logic, because quote, no challenge is presented to him unless it is shown him that on this on his principle he would destroy all truth and meaning. Then, if the Holy Spirit enlightens him spiritually, he will be born again unto knowledge and adopt with love the principle he was previously anxious to destroy. End quote. Van Til self-consciously attempts to build on the work of both the Princetonians and the Dutch. There is a common ground only in the sense of God in every man, the image of God. Man knows enough to condemn himself before God. We are to do more than preach to the lost, says Van Til, and we must do more than argue with the lost in terms of their presupposition of autonomy. He concludes the defense of the faith with these words, quote, Standing on the shoulders of Warfield and Kuiper, we honor them best if we build on the main thrust of their thought, rather than if we insist on carrying on what is inconsistent with their basic position. Then we are most faithful to Calvin and St. Paul. End quote. The two nations within the Northern Presbyterian Church were unquestionably divided theologically, humanism versus Christianity. They were not equally divided methodologically. Princeton's common ground apologetics softened the radical intellectual distinction between the saved and the lost because rationalist apologetics failed to see that the incompatible ethical presuppositions, saved versus lost, created inescapable differences in men's interpretation of the facts and their use of logic. Princeton's error in apologetics led to an overestimation of the role of the intellect in challenging men to believe in Christ. This, in turn, led to an overestimation of the skills imparted by higher education. Higher education, then as now, was a Trojan horse, a gift of the Greeks, which the Princetonians should have mistrusted. This faith in higher education, meaning education constructed in terms of the principle of the autonomy of human reason, yes, even, quote, right reason, served in effect as a bridge across the great divide over which theological liberals could pass. The passport which got the humanists across the bridge was the earned academic degree. It could be argued that it was a similar overestimation of the benefits of classical education, which helped to undermine the Puritans in the 17th century and the Calvinists who followed Jonathan Edwards into the 18th. Old Princeton's Strength, Eschatology There is no question about the dominant eschatological heritage of 19th century American Presbyterianism in general, and Princeton Seminary in particular. It was post-millennial. There was no more eloquent spokesman of this post-millennialism than B.B. Warfield. His optimism was unbounded concerning the future of Christ's gospel on earth prior to Christ's second coming at the final judgment. 
the kingdom of Satan will be rolled back. The earth will be filled with the saved and their works. It is significant that Warfield's opponent in this debate over the extent of the saved on earth was the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. Just as Bovink and Kuyper were his chosen opponents in the debate over apologetic methodology, Warfield rejected the Dutchman's amillennial eschatology, just as he rejected their presuppositional apologetics. In fact, Warfield begins his discussion of the question, quote, Are there few that be saved? End quote. The title of his essay, by challenging Kuyper's statement that, quote, The idea of some Christians that the whole of Europe is sometime to be Christianized, and after a while the entirety of the human race is to bow the knee to Jesus, cannot be maintained. The Holy Scriptures contradict this erroneous idea. Matthew 20.16 For many are called, but few chosen. Matthew 7.14 Luke 13.23 This is not the place to offer a detailed summary of Warfield's detailed rejoinder to Kuiper. The essay can be found in Biblical and Theological Studies. The important point here is that there were two fundamental theological debates within the world of Calvinism in Warfield's day primarily between the American Presbyterians and the Dutch. The disputed issues were apologetics and eschatology. That debate was taken up by Warfield, and as it turned out, he was the last important American Presbyterian scholar to focus on these two issues, until R.J. Rushduni. He reintroduced both issues in the 1960s and 1970s. Rushduni answered both Warfield and Kuiper by adopting the postmillennial optimism of the old Princeton and by rejecting the old Princeton's apologetics in favor of Van Til's final version of the old Kuiper-Bovink position. That theological fusion launched what is now known as the Christian Reconstructionist Movement. Two other important issues also make up Reconstructionism, biblical law and predestination. Although the latter doctrine is not held by many Baptists and Pentecostals who have been influenced by the Reconstructionists, Rush Dooney was the first theologian to adhere to all four positions and to develop a consistent worldview in terms of all four. Warfield's vision concerning the world-conquering nature of the gospel helps us to understand his unwillingness to encourage a young Machen in his proposed battle to toss out the growing legion of modernists and liberals in the Northern Presbyterian Church. Warfield was a Presbyterian. No one can doubt that but Warfield's vision extended beyond the denomination in which he had worked all of his life. The failures of any one denomination in one time period and in one geographical region did not overwhelm his long-term optimism. Yes, his church was close to defecting from the Orthodox faith. And indeed, its inability to enforce the Westminster Standards and the General Assembly's substitution in 1910 of five watered-down fundamentalist doctrines as a test of orthodoxy indicated that the Church has long since given up the historic Presbyterian standards. But this did not overly concern Warfield. Christianity is broader than the Northern Presbyterian Church, and of greater duration. The battle is long-term. Warfield's eschatological vision could not be undermined by short-term setbacks. Rotten wood, after all, is rotten. It is fit only for burning. Westminster Seminary, 1929 to 1964. Westminster Seminary has always claimed to be the heir of the old Princeton. In terms of its commitment to the Westminster Confession of Faith and to Princeton's high standards of scholarship, this claim was true, 
at least until the mid-1960s, when the administration began to make a systematic effort to broaden the seminary's financial and recruiting base and to become a less visibly Calvinistic and more evangelical institution. This shift occurred when Edmund P. Clowney was finally made president of the seminary, rather than simply acting president. It also coincided with the intellectual, institutional, and religious disruptions of the 1965-70 period, which engulfed the whole Western world. From that point onward, Westminster's claim to be the old Princeton became questionable. There was no heir to the old Princeton any longer. In two important aspects, however, Westminster's claim to be the heir of old Princeton was always a myth. Westminster hired Cornelius Van Til to teach apologetics in 1930, and Van Til was a Dutchman, Indeed, as he likes to say of himself, a stubborn Dutchman. He was a follower of Kuiper and Bovink in both his apologetic methodology and his eschatology. He was a presuppositionalist and an amillennialist. On these two crucial issues, he was not non-Princeton. This is not to say that Van Til's apologetic method was adhered to, or even understood, by his faculty colleagues. Only Edward J. Young, among the prominent faculty members, ever seemed to adopt Van Til's principle of circular reasoning. And this was the result of Young's reading Rush Dooning's book, By What Standard, 1959, rather than reading Van Til. I studied briefly under both Van Til and systematic theologian John Murray. I doubt that Murray ever relied on Van Til's apologetics to any degree, and Murray's adoption of a mild postmillennialism late in his career, with his studies of Romans 11, was at odds with Van Til's eschatology. What I am arguing here is that the older Princeton apologetics that Machen held to was no longer taught formally at Westminster, nor was the older postmillennialism that Machen also believed. Yet even in Machen's career, the importance of eschatology was muted. The older theological commitment had begun to fade. Machen never emphasized eschatology in his writings. When I asked Westminster's long-term church historian, Paul Woolley, in 1964 what eschatology Machen held, he replied, quote, To the extent that he ever mentioned it, Machen was a postmillennialist. There is no question that he was opposed to premillennialism, and not just dispensational premillennialism, for he said so clearly in Christianity and Liberalism, page 49, but there is no sign in any of his writings that he relied heavily on postmillennialism as a motivating concept in his battle against the modernists. When Machen pulled out of Princeton in the summer of 1929, he had few followers from Princeton's faculty. Only four men were to forsake Princeton's security for the uncertain venture at Westminster. Robert Dick Wilson, who was professor of Old Testament and who died a year later. John Murray, who had not been a full faculty member at Princeton, came, came a year later. Cornelius Van Til, who had taught at Princeton for one year, left Princeton for the pastorate for one more year before joining Machen, and Oswald T. Alice, an Old Testament specialist who was postmillennial but who never wrote on the topic openly as a postmillennialist, even in his book on eschatology, which refutes dispensationalism, prophecy in the church. Three recent graduates of Princeton also joined, Alan A. Macray, Old Testament, a premillennialist, Paul Woolley, Church History, a premillennialist, and Ned B. Stonehouse, New Testament, an amillennialist of Dutch origins, whose family name had been Steenhausen. 
who belonged to the Christian Reformed Church. Later additions to the faculty included Edward J. Young, Old Testament and Amillennialist, and R.B. Kuyper, Practical Theology, an Amillennialist from the Christian Reformed Church, and John H. Skilton, New Testament, who was Amillennial. Thus, from 1930 on, there were only two postmillennialists on the faculty, Machen and Alice. Alice resigned at the end of the term in 1936 in order to protest Machen's requirement that Westminster faculty members proclaim their support of his independent board of Presbyterian foreign missions. Machen died on January 1, 1937, two months after Carl McIntyre and the premillennialists had kicked him out as president of the independent board. That left no postmillennialists on the faculty. From that time until Norman Shepard joined the faculty in 1963, there were no postmillennialists teaching full time at Westminster, and Shepard's eschatological views did not come out clearly in his lectures. Worse, in his class on New Testament biblical theology, he assigned the amillennial textbook, the Pauline Eschatology, by Gerhardus Voss, 1862-1949. Fortunately for postmillennialists, Voss had one of the worst writing styles imaginable and it is almost as difficult to remember any of his arguments as it is to remember the arguments of Meredith G. Klein on biblical symbolism. It was a sign of the preliminary Dutch influence in the old Princeton that Princeton had Voss teaching biblical theology from 1893, the year of the Briggs trial, until his retirement in 1932. As a result, biblical theology within Calvinistic circles has been generally assumed to be the invention, an exclusive monopoly of all millennialists. That day has ended, as the writings of James Jordan and David Chilton indicate, and they, unlike Voss and Klein, are readable. John Murray had studied theology under Voss at Princeton, and Voss's influence in his thinking was strong. As a systematic theologian, Murray always had great respect for the discipline of biblical theology. The idea of progressive revelation and progressive clarity from Genesis to Revelation this was Voss's influence. Van Til related after Murray's death that Murray had advised him not to accept the chair of systematic theology at Calvin Seminary after Professor Burkhoff's death because, quote, to teach systematics properly, one must, first of all, be a biblical exegete. After that, one must be a biblical theologian in the way that Professor Gerhardus Voss had been a biblical theologian in his day, end quote. Murray wrote that, quote, Biblical theology is indispensable to systematic theology. End quote. He also held Voss's amillennial viewpoint until late in his own teaching career. He became a mild postmillennialist in the late 1950s, partially as a result of his discussions in Canada with Roderick Campbell, and unquestionably as a result of his own study of Romans 11, the conversion of the Jews. But initially, he limited his public discussion of Romans 11 to the Sunday school classes he taught off-campus. His spring 1964 lectures in his senior systematics class on eschatology were based on old and apparently unrevised notes and were therefore still amillennial in focus, while his lectures on Romans 11, given earlier in the day, were postmillennial. I attended both classes and was astounded at the schizophrenia involved. Senior systematics was required for graduation. The Romans class was optional. As a result, there was an undercurrent of, what, of confusion among the student body as to exactly what Murray was teaching. Eschatologically speaking, there were two John Murrays in the mid-1960s. 
but as far as the majority of students ever knew, there was only one, the amillennialist. His lectures on Romans 11 and my own reading of Revelation 12 brought me from ultra-dispensationalism to postmillennialism in the spring of 1964. In short, from the beginning, there had been a Dutch invasion of Western Westminster Seminary. The intellectual leadership of a seminary is usually found in three departments, systematic theology, New Testament studies, and apologetics. All three departments were dominated by all millennialists from the beginning at Westminster, and still are. Thus, with the demise of Princeton Seminary after the departure of Machen, and the overwhelming intellectual and financial support of Westminster coming from Christian Reformed Dutch circles from the beginning, a theological vacuum appeared in Orthodox American Presbyterianism. The postmillennial vision of the older Presbyterianism faded, and faded rapidly. Only one man's name was associated, associated with Calvinistic postmillennialism from the 1940s through the early 1960s, Lorraine Bettner. But Bettner had remained in the Old Presbyterian Church, so his influence was nil in the breakaway churches. Canadian Roderick Campbell's Israel and the New Covenant, published in 1954, did not sell well and went out of print in the mid-1960s. It was not reprinted until 1981, and the money was put, by, put up by the Geneva Divinity School Press, a Reconstructionist organization. The Recovery of Warfield's Vision Alva J. McLean, a leader in the Dispensationalist camp, announced in 1956 that, quote, devout postmillennialism was virtually disappeared, end quote. Hal Lindsey was even more outspoken, with less justification than McLean, for he wrote 14 years later, quote, No self-respecting scholar who looks at the world conditions and at the accelerating decline of Christian influence today is a postmillennialist, end quote. The great irony here was that much of the declining influence of Christianity, 1870 to 1970, was the product of dispensational theology's implied doctrinal justification of cultural impotence and retreat. For a century, dispensationalism and amillennialism combined to remove the hope of earthly success from Christians. Then, having castrated the sheep, they explained the unfruitfulness of the sheep on God's timetable. God supposedly has decided not to bring to earth, in history, a visible manifestation of his kingdom prior to Jesus' second coming. Therefore, cultural unfruitfulness is to become the Christian way of life. God has called us to earthly defeat. We were born to lose. Postmillennialism was not dead, as they supposed. It was only hibernating, like a newly awakened and hungry grizzly. The postmillennialist movement has come out of its long winter sleep. This time, however, it is armed more securely than it was in Warfield's day. It has a vision of victory, which was Warfield's vision. It also has a tool of dominion, biblical law, as well as a new self-confidence based on a better understanding of human reason, presuppositional apologetics. The presuppositional apologetic methodology of Van Til is what Rush Dooney set forth as the epistemological foundation of Reconstructionism in By What Standard, 1959, a decade before the term Christian Reconstruction was invented. The rapid spread of Reconstructionist ideas through the Christian community can be explained by many factors, but perhaps the most important ones are these. 1. The rise of the Six-Day Creationist Movement after 1960 
Rush Dooney helped to launch this by getting Presbyterian and Reformed to pub publish Morris and Whitcomb's Genesis Flood, after other Christian publishers had turned it down. This has helped to overcome the belief that Christians just have to make an intellectual deal with evolutionism. This deal-seeking has paralyzed Christian scholarship since 1925. 2. The Visible Disintegration of Humanism After 1963 The enemy is no longer self-confident in the universal logic of neutral reason. Everything is now up for grabs, and everyone is grabbing. With their loss of faith in universal neutral reason, humanists are less secure about challenging the validity of a consistent Christian worldview. 3. The Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, which struck down state laws against abortion. The literal life and death issue of abortion reveals the truth of Van Til's apologetic principle. There can be no neutrality. Either the unborn infant lives or is destroyed. There is no in-between. The fundamentalists are now mobilizing, as they have done, as they have not done since Prohibition. The sin of abortion is being challenged in the name of an explicitly biblical and Old Testament law system. This has been the first practical, tactical step in the reintroduction of Christians' faith in biblical law. 4. The rise of the independent Christian school movement since 1965. To pull children out of the humanist public schools is now seen as a religious duty by millions of parents. New curricula are now needed. Thus, there has been a quest for reconstructed textbooks, books that are different from state textbooks. The battle for the mind has at least become a visible reality to Christians who previously had believed in intellectual neutrality. 5. The rise of television's mass appeal, electronic ministries. It is difficult to mobilize support, read, increase donations, by means of a theology of defeat. Supporters will not give enthusiastically to just another ministry of failure. They can give to local churches if they are moved by an eschatology of failure. After all, it is the rapture, guarantee, of the local church which has brought so many people in, 1925 to 1975. To compete, the TV ministries had to offer something new. Many offered the grim story of humanist tyranny. The audience gets angry and wants to fight. Why fight to lose? Thus the language of avowed premillennialists has become postmillennial. This has softened the market for a revival of Warfield's vision of victory. Conclusion We are now witnessing the beginning of a true paradigm shift, as Thomas Kuhn has called it. The Christian community in the United States has at last begun to adopt the intellectual foundations of a new worldview. And this is always the first step in the replacement of a dying civilization which is based on a dying worldview. It happened in Rome. It happened to the medieval world. It happened in the last century to orthodoxy. It is now happening simultaneously to secular humanism and its religious accomplice, Christian pietism. War Warfield would be pleased. The day of victory draws nigh. The rotten wood is ready for burning, and a new civilization is being prepared to replace it. This audio version of Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis for Progress, by Gary North, has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Jason Sanchez. Please visit garynorth.com forward slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.